from the Alaska Airlines Studio. Presented by 2020lifestyles.com. This is The Blitz. The first look at the top stories in Seattle sports. They don't make them like good. We're not like everybody else. The rundown on everything Seattle sports on your way to work. Swing and a fly ball. Deep right center field. He did it again. And the stories everyone is talking about. We got this is the Blitz at Six. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Blitz at Six. Lydia Cruz alongside with you Thursday, August 20th. Thanks for hanging out this morning. Busy hour. Big news for the Seahawks yesterday as they announced the team plans to play their first three home games without fans in attendance. We'll discuss implications of that. Also, what the plan for the rest of the season is. We also got to hear from Rustin Wilson yesterday, speaking with Jason Lockfora about how he feels about the offense. Still more to dig in from Pete Carroll earlier this week, too, as well. And congrats to the M's breaking their slump with a win. Tywon Walker out on the mound yesterday and making a pretty important in-game adjustment, one that he said that he wouldn't have been able to make maybe earlier in his career. But thanks to help from his catcher, Austin Nola, Made that in-game adjustment. Speaking of Austin Nola, also pretty formidable at the plate as well. And they got the win against the Dodgers yesterday, uh, beating them 6-4. to four. It's all ahead in this hour. Right now, let's get to your headlines. Seattle Seahawks announced yesterday that they will plan to play their first three home games of the 2020 season without fans in attendance. So that includes September 20th against the New England Patriots, September 27th against the Dallas Cowboys, and October 11th versus the Minnesota Vikings. Seahawks President Chuck Arnold uh, had a detailed written statement and said, quote, while CenturyLink Field has become the best home field advantage in the league, thanks to your energy and passion, the health and safety of all of our fans, players, and staff remains our top priority. Although game day will look different this season, we feel confident this is the right decision. The team remains hopeful that conditions will improve as the season moves on and uh, vowing to follow the lead of local public health officials in the days ahead as they decide whether or not to host fans for future games after that. Back in June, Washington Governor Jay Inslee outlined the conditions for sports teams to resume play amid the ongoing coronavirus pandemic and set spectator-free play as one of the conditions under the governor's restrictions. Back office operations of up to 50 people are also also allowed unless a county's then-current phase permits a greater number of people. Teams have been approaching this in all sorts of different ways. We've seen some come out and say that they'll have no fans for the entirety of the 2020 season. Others seem ambitious in terms of how much capacity that they will be able to have. I think the Kansas City Chiefs are one of the recent ones saying that they will be able to operate, at least in their mind, at 20% capacity for their home games. Elsewhere in the NFC West, the Arizona Cardinals informed their season ticket holders back in July that teams plan to allow, uh, that the team, excuse me, allows to plan a limited amount of spectators on a game-by-game basis, but haven't provided the exact number. Meanwhile, the Rams and the 49ers continuing to monitor what's going on in California before making a final decision. So Seahawks uh, and the Cardinals with the first two definitive decisions on that. We also got to hear from Russell Wilson yesterday. He spoke with Jason LaConfora and uh, had some thoughts, first off, on on working with Antonio Brown. Um, and then Antonio, I was able to work with him this offseason. Yeah, you know, he's you know, one of the best receivers of all time, you know, so... You know, anytime you can get a guy like that, you know, you're, you're always 
into that idea for sure. You know, we want playmakers for sure. I mean, and the more playmakers you get, the, you know, the, the harder it is. And, and uh, you know, our, our, our division is a tough division. Russell also spoke about Josh Gordon saying he hopes he gets to play in the NFL again. Josh came in with us last year and, you know, he just did it. He was just such an amazing, you know, uh, you know, just energy in terms of just how he loved the game. You know, I, I pray for him all the time. And that's, that's my guy. And just, you know, uh, I, you know, hopefully he can play, play in the league again. Cause I, I know he's a special, uh, special person. He's gone through a lot. Um, you know, and, and, uh, I know he lost his brother last year, pretty heavy year. I think at the same time, you know, some of the plays that he can make, man, he was one of the best receivers in the game. You know, and he was really catching fire with us early on when we were able to get him the ball. During training camp, we heard from Russ uh, when he was asked if he agrees with the let Russ cook sentiment. Yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, I think the reality is, is that, you know, early in the games, you know, I want, you know, definitely you know, rather than us having it be in the fourth quarter, I, de- I think to be able to, you know, make some stuff happen. I think we want to, I think we have a crazy stat of the lead of, you know, I think 56 and 0 when we have the lead, you know, by halftime and stuff like that. I think, you know, getting, getting ahead is a key thing. You know, I do definitely believe in finishing strong. I think we've won a lot of games in the fourth quarter, you know, been, uh, do some fun things in the fourth quarter and in the games, but let's treat every quarter as the fourth, you know, and I think that's kind of my mentality always. I, I think about basketball a lot, you know, and just being able to score and make plays, but play, you know, great, solid, efficient football, uh, is, 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 is the name of the game. And, uh, you want to be able to do it all. And I think we we definitely can. We heard for more from Russ this week too on uh, on the offensive type of things. He said, uh, "Well, I went to Wisconsin. I don't mind handing it off." It's not just about me. It's about the weapons that we have too. We got a lot of great weapons out on the flank. Obviously, DK Tyler, Gray, you know, uh, Jacob Hauser had a great year. I mean, we had a lot of guys. Chris Carson can catch. Uh, you know, we got a lot of players. You know, that can really play ball. Um, Disley had a great year until he got hurt. You know, and so. Um, you know, we were lighting up the scoreboard, you know, and, and we were doing it in a lot of different ways. And, you know, I, you know, I went to Wisconsin for it. I say, I don't mind handing it off, you know, <laughs> but at the same time, I also think that, uh, you know, it's fun to have the ball in your hands and, and make plays just to be honest with you. Russ, with more thoughts on the let Russ cook sentiment. You know, uh, when you're down there and you want to win, that's, that's, that's what I wake up for. I wake up to win. I wake up to, to go out there on the field and win championships and, and do everything I can. I always relate to basketball. When you think about basketball, you know, you, you know, you, you want to be able to get the guy, you know, the balls that are through a hot hand, whatever that is. And I think, uh, hopefully I can have a, a hot hand for sure. The Mariners beat the Dodgers 6-4 to four yesterday, snapping the Dodgers' seven-game win streak. And the 1-2 on the way, swing and a miss, strike three, and it's over. Holy smokes, the Mariners won it 6-4 to four over the Dodgers tonight, and they snapped the seven-game losing streak. And hand Taiwan Walker his second win of the season. Taiwan Walker out on the mound, and he overcame some early long ball issues. This is a really good hitting team in the Dodgers, but through seven strong innings and behind the plate for him, Austin Nola did an incredible job calling that game. They made some in-game adjustments, which we'll talk about in just a second. But at the plate, Nola hitting a three-run homer and had four RBI, so not a bad day for him. Uh, With the Dodgers sitting on Walker's fastball, launching it for three early home runs, he made an in-game adjustment, and Austin Nola was a huge part of that. Scott Service recapping that after the game. Yeah, I think he found out. You know, they they got on his fastball. Uh, the, the home runs they hit were off fastballs. Um, I think that that's the maturity of uh, Taiwan Walker. The last time that Taiwan was a Mariner here a few years ago, he couldn't have made that adjustment mid-game. Um, he's learned. 
he, he went to some change-ups, some two-seamers, a lot of curveballs, got the cutter going, and it really slowed things down, slowed them down in the batter's box. They weren't just jumping all over the fastball. So really nice adjustment by him and Austin Nola uh, to, to recognize that and then you know execute it mid-game. Um, says a lot for, for where Taiwan's at and the adjustments he's made throughout his career. Ty also recording strikeout 500 yesterday, but he talked about, yes, making that in-game adjustment, how important that was. Um, second and third inning, when I gave up those home runs, we we noticed they were just sitting, started sitting on the fastball. You know, the fastballs I threw that, that they hit the home runs on, they weren't perfect pitches, but um, it just seemed like they were just started sitting fastballs in. So we made an adjustment and said, you know, let's just start throwing more off-speed. Let's, let's start pitching backwards. And uh, that's what we did. And I was able to land my, my uh, off-speed pitches for strikes. Uh, still get ahead with it and, you know, show the fastball um, just out of the zone, but really just attack with the off-speed pitches. And um, it was fun. You know, it was nice making that adjustment mid-game like that and, you know, recognizing it early. <sighs> Nola did an amazing job uh, behind the plate. You know, we, we – uh, switched up the game plan, and uh, we executed really well. Ty also mentioning, yes, exactly what Scott Service said, that earlier in his career this might not have been an adjustment he was able to make on the fly, but is that a sign of a lot of growth for him? Early in my career, I was just fastball changeup, and I threw a lot of fastballs, and I faced the Dodgers a lot when I was at Arizona, and my attack plan was just mostly fastball changeups to them. Um, but this year, you know, I have, I have a curveball now and a pretty good slider, and uh, the confidence I have with them, I was able to let me be able to go out there and make that adjustment and really trust my pitches. And uh, especially building off my last start where I threw, uh, you know, a bunch of curveballs for strikes and, and my slider too. Um, just really building that confidence and, you know, uh, trust in myself and trust in Nola and Nola trusting me um, to make that adjustment. Pretty awesome to see that. Also awesome, Austin Nola at the plate yesterday. He had an RBI single in the first inning, then added his third home run of the season in the third. 2-2. Swing, and this is crushed. Mariners are taking the lead. Austin Nola going way up into Edgar's. What a blast by Nola, his third. It's a three-run bomb, and the Mariners have taken a 4-3 lead. How about Dylan Moore adding a solo home run in the sixth as well? Swing and this is clubbed out to left field. This is riding back. It's on its way, and it is gone. Dylan Moore. He rides one out to left center. It's the fifth of the season for Dylan Moore. It comes with two outs, and it stretches the Mariners' lead. It's 6-3 Mariners at the bottom of the sixth. Coming up on the Blitz, the Mariners made a flurry of moves yesterday. Uh, including designating for assignment Daniel Vogelback, who was an all-star selection just a year ago. But the rest of those roster moves, also an update on Evan White, who left the game yesterday, had some people concerned about a potential injury. I'll explain. It's next on the Blitz right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. Seahawks training camp coverage all day long. This is the Blitz. Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studio. Welcome back to the Blitz at 6. Lady Cruz alongside with you Thursday, August 20th. The Mariners with a big win over the Dodgers yesterday. Thanks to Taiwan Walker on the mound making an in-game adjustment. Throwing more of his off-speed pitches after getting hit and drilled for some long balls early in the game. So cool to see that adjustment, that growth from Taiwan. 
Also, Austin Knoll has been pretty incredible at the plate. Before the game yesterday, though, the Mariners making some roster moves, including designating Daniel Vogel back for assignment. Scott Service on the moves made yesterday. I think everybody's seen uh, we made a few roster moves today. So uh, um, we optioned um, Art Warren uh, back to the alternate site, uh, get an extra position player there, and then you know, we also did uh, designate Vogie today. So uh, um, certainly uh, those decisions are hard and they're, and they're tough, uh, but, you know, that's where we're at organizationally and thought it was the best thing to do um, for where we stand right now. So um, I say all that. We'll get ready for tonight's game uh, against the Dodgers. Um, hopefully uh, come out on the better end of tonight's game. We've been playing them really tough the last couple of nights, and hopefully Taiwan Walker can give us a shot, do his job to keep us in the ballgame tonight. Spoiler alert, they did. Vogie, though, unfortunately, hitting just 094 with only five base hits, two home runs since the season began. He had yet to play a game in the field this season at first base. But keeping in mind that he was an all-star selection just a year ago and became a big part of the team in the clubhouse presence, even had a sandwich. The man had a sandwich named after him at T-Mobile Park, okay? The Vogie Hoagie, which was delicious. The Mariners made the move before the start of their five-game homestand yesterday, and Scott Service mentioning uh, what happened with Vogie this year. Well, really the extension, the second half of last year into this year. Uh, Vogie had a tremendous first half of the season last year, and uh, you know we all got on the on the Vogie train, so to speak, and, and we all love Vogie. It's a great personality. It's a guy you want to spend time with and be around. He's a really good teammate, and you know he was uh, doing some great things for us early in the season last year. In the second half. Uh, the season certainly it, it took another turn, and he really struggled. And uh, we, at that point, you know, we, we were exposing him to a lot of left-handed pitching uh, and really given an opportunity to go out there and get, you know, I think he got over 500 uh, plate appearances last year, which is great. You know, he, he earned it. And, you know, as we got going into this season uh, early on, uh, didn't see uh, much adjustments and certainly wasn't from lack of work on his end. He's trying to figure it out mechanically, but it just didn't come together. So Vogie's, you know, kind of locked in. We tried to play him some at first base last year. Um, not his strength. His strength is in the batter's box and hopefully hitting it over the fence. But, you know, doesn't bring a whole lot other than, you know, the bat. And the bats, when that's your big carrying tool, uh, you know, you have to hit. And it's, it's a do-good league. And uh, where we're at right now, just going to give, uh, you know, some of those at-bats and opportunities to some other players. Service was unsure if Vogie would clear waivers and could revert to Seattle's alternate training site roster. So how will they utilize the DH spot moving forward? Oh, yeah, definitely. We'll move it around. I think it gives us an opportunity to, uh, you know, you put Kyle Lewis in a DH for a day. You give Siegs a DH for a day. Uh, you know, you can do some, you get Nola, uh, Austin Nola in there to DH maybe on a day that Joe Odom is catching. You know, things like that is how you'll see us use it, you know, going forward. And I you know, outside, it's just a handful of teams anymore that just have the designated DH, so to speak. The the Nelson Cruz's, uh, you know, Edwin Encarnacion, uh, you know, they're just they're few and far between. They really are. It does, you know, lock your roster up a little bit. If that guy doesn't really have the ability to go out on the field, you really, really have to be productive um, and, and facing both the lefties and the righties. Along with the vocal back move, the Mariners recalled outfielder Braden Bishop and utility a man Sam Haggerty. Both were in the starting lineup against the Dodgers yesterday. And congrats to Sam Haggerty on getting his first major league hit. Here's Sam Haggerty, a swing and a ground ball up the middle into left center field. Haggerty with his first major league hit, a drive into left center field. He gets aboard. There is hit number one in the big leagues for Sam Haggerty. How about that? What a souvenir. Way to go, kid. 
Your first hit in the big leagues. Around to third goes Lopes, and the Mariners have runners on at first and third. Sam Haggerty, first hit in the show. What a thrill for Sam. Seattle also optioned right-hander Art Warren and outrighted right-hander Brian Shaw to its alternate training site, as Scott Service mentioned. The M's held a moment of silence before the game yesterday for former U.S. Senator Slade Gordon, who died on Wednesday at age 92. Gordon, a huge advocate for baseball in Seattle, had a major hand in the Mariners' arrival in 1977 as an expansion franchise after the Pilots left for Milwaukee following the 1969 season, later helped facilitate the sale of the team to local ownership that kept the team in Seattle in the 1990s. Uh, Mariners chairman John Stanton saying probably no single person was as important to the history of Major League Baseball in Seattle and the Mariners as Slade. Up next on the Blitz, Paul Moyer, the Seahawks own. He had a great film breakdown on Seahawks YouTube channel yesterday going through Jamal Adams film and explaining why he is such an impact player on the field. We'll hear, we'll hear from him. Plus, Dave Wyman's training camp takeaways so far. It's next on the Blitz right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. Seahawks training camp coverage all day long. This is The Blitz, powered through the Alaska Airlines studio. Welcome back to The Blitz at 6. Lydia Cruz alongside with you Thursday, August 20th. Still to come in the hot list, we've got the recap of all the NBA games happening yesterday. Also, a really unfortunate incident for one Cincinnati Reds broadcaster that took over the sports world and the sports storyline yesterday. We'll dig into that in the hot list. But up first, Dave Wyman, he has been out at training camp observing uh, this defense. What are his biggest takeaways, including his first look and impression of Jordan Brooks? Uh, Dave, uh, what has been your impressions of the first-round pick, Jordan Brooks, linebacker. I know you've been watching him very closely. Uh, what has been your impressions of him so far? Yeah, you know, it's it's been, I would say that uh, all of the rookies, you can kind of tell how they're moving. I, you know, I mentioned that that Cody Barton's flying around, and of course Bobby and KJ, just, they, they are so smooth. You know, they don't take any false steps. They don't, they get to exactly where they want. So, you know, there's nothing like, terribly you know um out of the ordinary that's that's stood out with jordan brooks other than the the one thing that i thought the best play he made he almost picked off russell in a team this is when they were not in pads but it's a team period where he had to drop back into a zone and that's something i didn't see him do a lot at texas tech i'm sure he he does but understanding the coverage this is why i said cody barton had the best camp I'd ever seen out of a rookie last year because he understands coverage and, you know, dropping back to in, in a zone in college just means you go and you cover, uh, you know, five yards of turf. But when you get in the NFL, your pattern progressing, your base, you know, whatever they're running in front of you tells you what's going on behind you. And you know how you have to know how to hold off routes and jump routes. And that's exactly what he did. So, you know, that was that was very impressive. But I think he's one of those guys that you're really going to have to go get him. He wasn't practicing yesterday. They say he's fine. But, um, you know, you're going to have to see him in pads going full speed because I think that's really what, what he is. He's a hammer. 
you know, and, and that's what they need. And that's what I think Marquise Blair is too. So, you know, really he's, his benefit is going to be that he's going to be, you know, when, when he gets the pads on and he provides that pop out there that they didn't really have last year, other than, you know, I thought KJ had, had a bunch of really good hits. Quandre Diggs, of course, Bobby, you know, always has his share, but um, yeah, they really need somebody that's that's kind of like a, an intimidator out there, and I, I think that's what Brooks is. I think the key is going to be for him, the coaches that put him in a spot where he doesn't have to think too much. Remember when they put Shaquille, uh, I'm sorry, Shaquem Griffin, uh, out in the Denver game? He had to start at linebacker on the second level, and the poor kid was just lost. I mean, it wasn't what he was yeah. used to doing. And he didn't, you know, wasn't dropping into zones right. He screwed up a zone drop, and they end up getting, you know, a long gain out of it. So, you know, you, if you can avoid doing that and just put him in situations where, hey, you're going to go in, you're going to, you know, act like you're you're dropping back into zone, and you're going to blitz the A-gap. Or, you know, just run and go make plays and, and don't make anything too complicated for him. I think that they'll get something a lot out of this kid because he's got great feet he's got good pad level and everything and he just he just flies around the field dave you you just uh gave incredible compliments to the secondary uh at the back end of of this group along with the linebackers and comparing it to looking like the 2013 defense the other equation of that was the defensive line um, and do you believe that the secondary, the secondary to linebacker group is good enough and talented enough to cover up maybe some of the deficiencies that are on the defensive line, or do you believe that this defensive line group is going to surprise people? Well, I think, you know, LJ Collier and Rasheem Green are two guys I think that are sleepers, and I don't know about surprise. I mean, I think they can get back to the 40 sacks that they've averaged since Pete Carroll came in here, and that would be an increase of 12. You know, I said when Jamal Adams came in, they just got 10 sacks because the coverage that they're going to be able to provide. And so, yeah, the defensive backfield can definitely help these guys get home. There's some talent there. Man, I can't tell you the number of times where there was no time to get to the quarterback. They just – there was a lot of soft zone, just kind of allowing throws in the middle of the field and, and, you know, just keeping everything in front of you. That There was never a time last year where we said, oh, that was a coverage sack. (laughs) Never. So, you know, those guys are going to definitely provide that. And that's, you know, as long as I'm not expecting anything like miraculous out of this group. But here, here's what I'll say that is very wise that the Seahawks did this offseason. They traded away a couple of first-round draft choices, and I know everybody was wringing their hands over that. The draft over the next couple of years in this landscape is going to be even more of a crapshoot, in my opinion, maybe even for two years. I mean, we don't know how long this uh, – this virus is going to last and how long it's going to disrupt college football. The other thing is it's going to be not impossible for rookies and undrafted free agents to make the team and to contribute, but it's going to be very difficult because there's no OTAs and there's no preseason. So they went and very wisely got not only seasoned veterans, but seasoned veterans who are coming off their best years. Mayoa is coming off his best year, seven sacks. I know they were all in the first half, but he kind of explained that, look, we were winning then, and so opposing teams were passing to try to get back in the game. Uh, Bruce Irvin coming off of eight and a half sacks, one of those against Russell uh, in Carolina, and that's his best year. Uh, Carlos Hyde went over 1,000 yards. So, And then you, you bring in Dunbar and Adams, you know, that – 
I'm really excited about some of these D linemen. I'm getting back to answering your question, Jake. But like LJ Collier and Rasheem Green, I, I believe in those guys. I think they're going to develop. But now you don't have to have them because you've got some, some, like I said, seasoned veterans out there, and Brandon Jackson included, Jaron Reed. I think Jaron Reed, I give two examples of guys that played up to a contract. I, I'm not sure if you guys thought this. A lot of people thought, well, that's a lot of money for Jaron Reed. We thought that about when they paid KJ the first time, and we also thought that when they paid Tyler Lockett $11 million. Everybody was like, oh, that's kind of a lot of money. Not everybody, but some people. And one person on our show, (laughs) I won't say who it was, Jim. Uh, But, uh, yeah, I mean, $11 million looks cheap now with Tyler Lockett. So, yeah, and Jim's even saying that too. So, yeah, it's a... I think Jaron Reed's going to play up to that and be that ten and a half sack guy, not the two two and a half sack guy that he was last year. Those takeaways on Tom, Jake, and Stacy from Dave Wyman, and you can listen to Dave every day from three to seven in the afternoons. But he's been all over our Seahawks two day coverage, uh, thankfully so, because I always love hearing Wyman's point of view. Also love hearing from another former Seahawks on the defensive side of things, Paul Moyer, joining Bob David Moore yesterday. He did a great film breakdown of Jamal Adams, which is up on the Seahawks YouTube channel, but also uh, chatting with the guys yesterday about a couple of other positions, including does he think there is a battle at the corner spot? Flowers comes back and and hopefully adopts that aggressive attitude he's talking about. He's determined. He's motivated. Dunbar, they're going to sort of ease him into things. Does this open the door for Trey Flowers? Because I feel like we've all just sort of conceded that job to Dunbar. Oh, it's his job to lose, and Trey Flowers isn't that good. And I know Dave and I, at least, and Bump, I don't think we've touched on with yet, but I think he was a lot better last year than people gave him credit for. Um, where, where are you at with this position battle? Is it a done deal in your mind, or do you feel like, hey, don't sleep on Trey Flowers here? Well, it's never a done deal with the Seahawks. I mean, it's it's not just fluff. I mean, it's competition, and the best player is going to play. And that's there's a lot of franchise obviously use that uh, motto, but the Seahawks are legit about it. So it, it's open. I, you know, the first part, you know, with the Dunbar pieces, look, you know, he had a lot going on. Uh, my guess is his full energy and focus was. I got to make sure I take care of things legally, and it may have been, hey, I'm not working out like I normally would have been. So maybe he's not, you know, quite t- tip-top shape like they they thought he might be. And so just ease him in on that. And again, I just think what he went through, you know, emotionally, has got to be, you know, draining for him. Um, as far as Trey Flowers, I didn't expect anything different. I, he is a good football player. The guy's played two years of corner in his life. Um, that's a tough position, you know. Physically, it's probably the toughest position. Uh, just the things they ask them to do, and I expect him to compete like like crazy. I kind of sound like Pete Carroll there, like crazy. Um, <laughs> but I do. I, I think he's a good football player. And if you know Dunbar starts, that's great. That means we've improved that position. And if Trey Flowers makes a, another leap, uh, you know, into his third year. You know, that, that's good too. I, here's what I know. We're going to be so much better at corner this year. We got so much more depth. We have so many different ways we can move these guys around and match up. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think you'll see probably both of them on the field quite a bit. It's funny. We were uh, listening to some clips from Jamal Adams. He was on the morning show with Danny and Gallant. And uh, one of the things he said, Paul, was he goes, I don't want to give you guys too many beans, but we, we got a, we got a couple of packages here, uh, that, uh, that we're, we're ready with. And, 
you know, whether it's three safeties or, you know, have you kind of looked at this as a coach and thought, here's what I would do? You know, because they did a lot of stuff like that last year. Um, well, not a lot, but, I mean, you would see it every once in a while, three linemen, three linebackers, five DBs. You know, they'd line up Trey inside sometimes. So when, when you as an old DB coach are, are looking at this, yeah, you're just trying to get the best guys on the field, right? Whether they're safety types or, or corner types, and uh, it seems like there's going to be a, a lot of, as Pete would say, Paul, cool stuff out there this year on defense. Cool stuff, and I think there will be some cool stuff. You know, Greg Williams from who's the, the Jets, and he's been around. I mean, he's known for he loves to game plan and blitz and be exotic and guess what you know that works for him at times and also when you throw that many things in there you can make a lot of mistakes and you know i think pete alluded to that in their jabs back and forth i also know that you get a guy like jamal adams you know you can't just play a vanilla base defense and say we, we just gave up you know two first round draft picks and 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 not use him to the best of his ability. And I'll give you an example of this. It went, Dave, you remember, it was 1992. We had uh, Eugene Robinson. We had a really good defense, but I said, you know, Eugene's our star in the secondary, and I moved him around everywhere. And, you know, I blitzed him, and I wherever I thought the football was going to go in that down distance and personnel, I made sure that he was on that side of the ball. And he had nine or ten interceptions that year. And I think he did it again the next year. And, you know, some people say, well, you're doing too much with him. I go, yeah, it's kind of working, you know, and, and I'm willing to put the time in and teach it, which a lot of coaches, you know, they want to get there early but not stay till midnight and just put in their system and say, okay, players go out and play and win. Uh, in this deal with Jamal Adams, I think they're going to do both. They're going to have your vanilla, you know, your packages that, you know, we're really good at. But we're going to put this guy, Jamal Adams, in a position to make plays, whether that's coming off the edge, blitzing, or in the passing game where he can intercept. And he can. He hasn't had a lot. I think he's only had two so far. But he has all the ability in the world to cover tight ends and, and other wide receivers. So I think it's going to be fun. I don't know how it's going to play out, but uh, it's not going to look the same as last year. That's for sure. Plenty of positives, especially on the defensive side of things. There are observations from Dave Wyman and Paul Moyer. You can listen to those full interviews and podcasts available at 710sports.com. Up next on The Blitz, it's time for the hot list. We've got some unique Ngakwe speculation from Tom Pelissero, also the Pac-12 making a big hire, and all the recap from the NBA playoffs yesterday. It's next in the hot list right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. Seahawks training camp coverage all day long. This is the Blitz, powered through the Alaska Airlines studio. It's time for the Hot List. Holy mackerel! The headlines for the day in sports every morning at 6.45. Heck yes! What are we missing here? A full breakdown of the top stories of today on your morning drive. Let's go! NFL Network's Tom Pelissero had some recent speculation on pass rusher Yannick Ngakwe, Unique Ngakwe, excuse me, and where he would end up. His name has been tied to Seattle in the past, but uh, speculation currently. There was some renewed speculation today about the Jaguars' unsigned franchise player Yannick Ngakwe and whether or not the Jaguars potentially have a deal that would be close with a second-round draft pick on the table. Here's what I can tell you. As of now, 
There are no signs that anything are imminent with Ngakwe. And based on conversations I've had with teams that have spoken to the Jaguars, it would be shocking if they're willing to move Ngakwe for only a second-round pick. The price is higher. It would have to be something like a second-round pick and change. Also talked about Unique's choices. Now, the relationship between Ngakwe and the Jaguars has been better since Ngakwe recently changed agents, but it sounds as if he would still prefer to be traded. And he has some level of control over where he would be traded because he would have to sign that franchise tender in order to make the trade happen. At some point here, Ngakwe is going to have to make a decision. Is he willing to sit out? Is he willing to play for the team that the Jaguars can agree to a trade with? Or if there is no trade, is he willing to come back and do something he said he won't, which is play for the Jaguars again and make upwards of $1 million per week? The Pac-12 hired longtime NFL and college football executive Merton Hanks as its new senior associate commissioner for football operations. It's the first time the conference has had a leader devoted entirely to the sport. Because remember... Larry Scott is also a media executive. Hanks will report directly to Pac-12 Commissioner Larry Scott. Hanks will be responsible for all aspects of Pac-12 football administration, including scheduling, officiating, replay command center operations, the conference title game, as well as the bowl relationships with the Pac-12. He will also serve as the primary contact for Pac-12 athletic directors and football coaches, bowl partners, etc. The former Iowa graduate played nine seasons in the NFL and was a starting safety for the 49ers when they won the Super Bowl back in 95. He was four-time Pro Bowl selection, three-time All-Pro member, and nominated for the 2020 Pro Football Hall of Fame class. Now coming to the Pac-12. There's been a lot of opinions when it comes to college football and the decision for some conferences to continue playing, the decision for others to halt playing. Lane Kiffin, Ole Miss head coach, recently voicing his opinion that he believes the students who play in the Big Ten or the Pac-12 should have the option to transfer if they want. Kids are getting their team, their schools deciding or their conferences deciding to shut down. And so they can't play. And a lot of them got a lot of money on the line for the next level or they just want to play their last years. And so it's really unfortunate that the NCAA is not allowing them uh, to transfer and be eligible immediately. Um, you know, we're being told that that wouldn't even go into a waiver process. So I feel really bad for those kids. It's not their fault. Why can't they come play somewhere? So that, that don't make any sense to me. James Franklin, Penn State head coach, on why he took issue with the decision to postpone the season, or at least how it came about. I don't necessarily have a issue with the decision, but I have an issue with the process, and I got an issue with the timing. You know, it was challenging to keep getting up in front of my team and getting up in front of my parents and not having answers to their questions. So to me, if we were going to make the decision to delay the season, that we at least took the time to work with the NCAA and the Big Ten to have all the answers for what that's going to mean. Does he think the Big Ten will revisit the decision to play this fall? I love to see our players uh, have voices. I love to see the parents have, have voices. Uh, I know they do within our organization. You know, we've had a lot of really good conversations. I, I had a meeting with the parents last night, and it's hard because you continue to have these meetings. Again, you still don't have a whole lot of answers for them. Um, but I still think the, the ability to get together and look each other in the face and, and let them know what you do know is important. Do I think things are going to change? I don't think we're going to go back to a fall season. I don't, I don't think that that's going to happen. I don't think the petitions and 
and the, the voices are going to allow us to go back and say, you know, we're going to play this fall. Uh, I wish that was the case, but, but I don't see that happening. Meanwhile, we've seen some schools, they've experienced uh, COVID outbreaks when returning to campus. Adam Rittenberg, ESPN College Football writer on Notre Dame having to halt practice. What they're doing is waiting for their latest results of COVID-19 testing to compare it to this obvious spike that's taken place on campus. 222 positive tests at Notre Dame since August 3rd. But as you mentioned, very few on the Notre Dame football team. So as long as they have a low number and it doesn't reflect what's going on on campus, which would trigger a much more complicated contact tracing procedure, I would expect Notre Dame to be back on the practice field by Thursday. So that could come tonight, it could come tomorrow. That's why Thursday is a possibility whether they resume practice. But as long as that bike inside the program doesn't reflect what's happening on campus, they should be back on the field soon. All right, how about the other side? What have you heard from the ACC on how a potential disruption to Notre Dame season would affect its relationship with the conference, considering this is all unprecedented? Sure, it is in football. They're obviously a member in all other sports, and their doctors are on all the ACC calls. Brian Kelly is on the ACC football coaches call. But the ACC, like every league, had to have flexibility in case a school like Notre Dame just decided we can't play this fall. They created that with their schedule, with their bye weeks, which certainly apply to North Carolina as well. It's obviously more complex with Notre Dame entering the league just for this year in football. They bring in their own television contract, so that adds a level of complexity. But the ACC is ready to adjust if necessary, but they have not received any indications that Notre Dame is ready to go there. NBA playoffs continued yesterday with four more games for your entertainment. Toronto beat Brooklyn 104-99 to take a 2-0 series lead. Doris Burke explaining why she believes Toronto is a real threat to win it all. I think Toronto is a real threat, and I'm going to go back to something Frank Vogel said to me in a Zoom call as we prepped for one of his games in the regular season, and that was, I said, I think Toronto is a legitimate threat to come out of the East. And Frank's response to me, Greeny, was come out of the east he said i think they're a legit threat to repeat Mm. so he's not saying he thinks they will repeat he just thinks they are legit here's what i know about the raptors they are deep they are uh champion of championship pedigree they carry themselves differently they executed a high level on both ends of the floor they are made up of individually sound defensive players who can follow a game plan, who know personnel, and who can flip in the middle of a possession from one defense to another. And there is incredible trust between a coach that is brilliant in Nick Nurse and the personnel that they have. Love hearing doors. Gets me excited for playoffs. The Celtics also solidified a two-game series lead with a resounding 128-101 win over the Sixers. Jason Tatum scored 33 points. That's a career playoff high for him for the second straight game because he scored 32 in the opener on Monday. Campbell Walker added 22 points. Jalen Brown had 24. The Celtics, this was after they lost starting forward Gordon Hayward to a right ankle sprain in Game 1 and expect him to be out for approximately four weeks. The Sixers led by 14 in the first quarter, but the Celtics rallied to lead 65-57 at halftime. Joel Embiid had 34 points and 10 rebounds for Philadelphia and uh, Josh Richardson adding 18 points. Elsewhere, two teams even things up at 1-1. One one. The Jazz with a 124-105 win over the Nuggets. The Mavs also beating the Clippers 127-114. Kawhi Leonard had 35 points in 41 minutes. Luka Doncic had 28 points for the Mavs. Doncic with it, minute 40 to go. 10-point Maverick lead. Pass to Curry, touch pass right back to Luka. Nine to shoot. Luka on the drive, floats it in. Dallas by 12 with 90 seconds to go. Should put it to bed. (laughs) Chris Taps-Porizing has added 23 as well. 
A pretty horrific moment yesterday. Reds broadcaster Tom Brenneman, he was suspended uh, from working Cincinnati games after using an anti-gay slur on air Wednesday night, prompting the team to apologize for the, quote, horrific homophobic remark. Brenneman used the slur moments after the Fox Sports Ohio feed returned from a commercial break for the top of the seventh inning in the first game of a doubleheader at Kansas City. Brenneman did not seem to realize his mic was on. It was a hot mic and he was already on air. That's when the comment happened. He later apologized. I'm going to put that in air quotes. The Reds took Brenneman off the broadcast in the fifth inning of the second game because he was still at the time calling the broadcast and handed his duties to uh, alternate play-by-play man Jim Jim Day, here was that moment when he, as I mentioned, saying this term loosely, apologized. Jim Day's going to be taking us the rest of the way through this game. As Holland takes over on the mound. Um, I made a comment earlier tonight that uh, I guess uh, went out over the air that I am deeply ashamed of. Um, If I have hurt anyone out there, I can't tell you how much I say from the bottom of my heart, I'm so very, very sorry. I pride myself and think of myself as a a man of faith. As there's a drive in a deep left field by Castellanos, it will be a home run. And so that'll make it a 4 nothing ball game. I don't know if I'm going to be putting on this headset again. I don't know if it's going to be for the Reds. I don't know if it's going to be for my bosses at Fox. I want to apologize for the people who signed my paycheck for the Reds, for Fox Sports Ohio for the people I work with, for anybody that I've offended here tonight. I can't begin to tell you how deeply sorry I am. That is not who I am uh, and never has been. And I'd like to think maybe I could have some people that uh, that could back that up. I am very, very sorry, and I beg for your forgiveness. Jim Dale, take you the rest of the way home. Unfortunately, didn't actually address the community to which his uh, remark was directed and instead apologizing to his bosses and to the people who signed his paycheck there. Uh, The Cincinnati Reds issuing a statement saying they were horrified, devastated by the comment and in no way does it represent their players. He also uh, was pulled off the air and suspended from doing Reds broadcasting. They'll say that they will address the broadcast needs in the coming days. But several of the Reds players also tweeting out yesterday support for the LGBTQ community um, and saying that they support them, that uh, I think Amir Garrett had one of the most powerful tweets saying to the LGBTQ community, just know I am with you and whoever is against you is against me. I'm sorry for what was said today. That's a wrap for the hot list in the entire Blitz at 6 Hour. Danny and your Gallant coming your way next right here on 710 ESPN Seattle.